I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, Genesis 1 and Ephesians 4. Genesis 1 and Ephesians 4. In our church family, we're engaged in a study on uh, the Bible and culture. And uh, our desire in this series is to shine the light of biblical truth into key areas of our lives as Christians. And the reason that we think that that is an important endeavor for our church and for our community, for our country, is that there is an increasing ignorance of biblical truth and also a broad rejection of biblical truth. And that begins to have an effect on the culture. You may ask the question, well, if there is a lack of understanding of God's truth, does that really matter? what would change? And I would argue that yes, it does matter because God's word says what you sow is what you reap. Galatians 6 says God is not successfully ignored. When God's moral law is ignored, you get chaos and confusion. We have it obviously in our country in high profile settings even as we speak. Departure from moral boundaries is leading to disappointment that in many ways defies words and explanation. Is there hope? I think that's a question that's been banging around in my head. Is there hope? And I think the answer is twofold. I think that the word of God gives hope. Uh, Psalm 119 says that the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And when the distressing question is asked, how can a young man keep his way pure? The Bible responds by saying this, by keeping it according to your word. Folks, I believe there's hope because of the power of God's word, but that truth alone is not enough. We also need to reassure ourselves of the converting power that the gospel of God gives. The book of Ephesians basically is a book that spends three chapters highlighting the converting power of the gospel. It's capacity to bring lasting transformation and change. It is a book that talks about hope in God himself. And it it kind of culminates in chapter 3 and verse 20 when it says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we would ask or imagine. According to his power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, both now and forevermore. Amen. So we have hope in two regards. One is that God's truth is a light for us in terms of cultural issues that we wrestle with and and work through. But we also believe that the converting power of the gospel is the key to change. In other words, the, the key to change isn't simply people saying, I'm going to begin following the Ten Commandments. Okay, without an unconverted heart, you will simply suppress your natural tendencies for a while. They will pressure, in pressure, build and finally explode and the real you will come out. Words alone, my attempts at righteousness will fail. It is only when I begin to realize, according to this verse, verse 20, that it is the power of God at work within us that true and lasting change can come in the world that we live in. Folks, what people need is not a change politically. What we need is a change spiritually. We as a nation need to turn our hearts to God in faith, believing that God alone 
can bring the change in our culture that is so desperately needed. And so the aim of our series and the aim of the text that we'll talk about this morning is to help us to have insight into a particular area of our lives, an important area of our lives, and to shine the light of biblical truth and to give hope that that area of our lives can be regained, restored, and made what God desires for and intends for it to be. And the area of our discussion this morning is the area of our work relationships and our workplace. This morning, I'm going to answer the question, why we work. And then next week, I'm going to answer the question of how we work. So this week, more laying kind of a theological foundation for why we work, a biblical understanding of the place of work in our culture. It's an important part of all of our lives. If you think this through, and I, I, I started to do this with a calculator and then I gave up. I'll get, here's my summary statement. I was going to try to give you hours and all that stuff that probably just leave you a little bored, okay? The bottom line is this. If you are a working individual, you probably spend the majority, you do more than likely spend the majority of your waking hours in commuting to work, being at work, and coming home, okay? That's, that's just the way it is. The majority of your time is spent in an, in an environment that many of us don't value as ministry, and I think that's where we need to kind of challenge the assumptions of our age and regain a biblical view of the issue of work. Now, as I talk about this, I want to say this to stay-at-home moms. Okay, my wife was a stay-at-home mom. My wife was a very productive uh, individual, individual in the context of our home life, made vital and valuable contributions. And I want to say this that as I talk about work and the living out of our daily life and contributing to the wellness and wholeness of our society and our families, I believe that the role that, that a stay-at-home mom fulfills is incredibly valuable and is captured in this broader discussion of how we spend our daily lives in the realm of our work, which may be done at home, it may be done in a workplace that you go to. Both, I believe, are exceedingly valuable according to the Word of God. So I want to make sure that we lay that down as a foundation so with that said, I want to give you this question. Tomorrow morning, do you have to go to work or do you get to go to work? I believe how you answer those questions <laughs> tells you a lot about your understanding of work as a gift from God. Okay, do you have to go to work tomorrow? I have to go to bed because I have to go to work. And work is seen as pure burden, okay? Or do I get to go to work to be what we sang this morning, the light of the world, okay? It will change how you approach every day of your life if you see it as a divine appointment or if you see it as drudgery. Now, I want to lay this out as a, as a basic foundation for our discussion from Genesis 1, all right? God is the one that ordained work. God is a working God. You read through Genesis chapter 1 and you find God is an individual, a person who is taking delight in his accomplishments. After he does something in the realm of work in the six days of creation, the Bible repeatedly says God saw it and it was good. There was, in the image of God, in the nature of God, is this capacity to create and wonder admire the beauty of. Now, I want to bring this down to really simple terms, okay? Uh, 
I like mowing my grass, okay? I particularly like when it's done, okay? Because I usually go up to our kitchen window and I look out. And what, what I find after... Just, and I'm just using it as an illustration. There are many other things. It could be baking a cake or cooking a meal or all kinds of things that we do. I find a, a very distinct pleasure and joy in the accomplishment of a task like that. I love closure. So God creates and then steps back and, and, and admires what he has done. You and I are wired very much in the same way. I'm confident that the lady that cuts my hair even though there's not as much anymore, but the lady that cuts my hair, when she's done, you know what she does? She walks around and looks at it, not me, okay? She's admiring what she accomplished. There's a natural desire to do that. If you're a carpenter, you, you go in, you accomplish a task, get everything painted, and most people don't just walk out. They tend to step back in today's age, take a photo to share with their friends, and admire what has been done. And then the idea behind all of that is what? That God is a creative God who takes pleasure in what he has made. And then we find further on in the story in Genesis 1 verse 28, it says, after God made mankind, he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said to them, take care of this. Genesis 2 verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, not as drudgery, but as worship. And part of his responsibility before God, God created us to work and God gives us specific tasks. And when we work effectively, we find some degree of joy and fulfillment in that work. Ephesians 4.28 is the text that addresses the topic of work. And it's, uh, there were a couple passages. I'm going to go to Colossians 4 next Sunday morning. But this morning, I want to focus on one verse because this is a verse that relates to work. And it's a verse that set me back on my heels. I'm going to estimate 10 to 12 years ago, I read this verse. And it's one of those verses that I've read. It's a verse that I have memorized. But the, the full import or impact of it it, it, it just, it shocked me when I read it. And I want to read it to you, and then I want to unpack it in three kind of simple units. Ephesians 4, verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. I want you just to let that settle in. He that stole must stop it. Instead, he must work doing something useful with his own hands so that he may have something to give to those in need. So I just want to unpack that very simple portion of Scripture. Now, the first thing that's obvious in it is that it has a prohibition. It's a prohibition of stealing. That's one of the commandments. And most people, when you talk to them about who they are and what they're like, most people say, well, I don't don't steal. No one wants to be called a thief. 
But I think as you unpack that passage of Scripture and ask, what is the full import of thou shalt not steal? I think Paul extrapolates on that text. It's kind of one of those, you have heard it said, thou shalt not steal. But I say to you, be generous. See, most of us take this idea, thou shalt not steal, and we focus on that. And here's what we think. We think that if I am honest in relationship to material possessions, I don't take things from people, I don't steal from my employer, I don't steal time, I don't steal stuff, I don't steal pens, then I'm, I'm walking in obedience to that command. This morning, I want to do this. I want to stretch your thinking. Because I don't think I'm following the command, thou shalt not steal, until I catch the full import of this passage of Scripture that is before us in as much as it relates to our work life. So let's just, let's work our way through this. The prohibition first. Stop stealing. Why? Because stealing is harmful, it's shameful, and it is hurtful to others. What I find fascinating in the text is that it is extremely concise. It doesn't discuss the motive of theft. It carm plots deals with all kinds of thefts, irregardless of the motive. Okay, and why is theft wrong? Theft is wrong because it is a selfish, self-oriented way of living. It violates the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so when I say that, and I ask what drives theft, I think I'm going to end up saying that, that theft is a selfish way to meet my needs by taking advantage of the hard work of others. Okay, so I benefit while others labor. Okay, and that, in, in this text, that is going to be described as theft. Now, in this text, if you go back to verses 22 to 24 of this text, you're going to find that Paul starts this discussion of particular issues with the discussion of what it means to be transformed, how transformation takes place. It is the work of God, chapter 3, right? He is at work in you. And as he's at work in you, you begin to cooperate with God in a process that we call sanctification. And here's the way that Paul describes it. I'm just going to summarize verses 22 to 24. Sanctification is the process of putting off old lifestyles and putting on new lifestyles. So in the context, the picture is I take this off, I put this on. And in that process of taking off and putting on, I am being renewed, according to Paul's words, in the image and likeness of Christ. There is more of Jesus that becomes apparent in my life. In the realm of work, Paul says you need to put off stealing. You need to put off taking advantage of others. You need to put off the selfish lifestyle and put on a lifestyle that is characterized by hard work to provide for the needs of yourself and your family and others. Okay, so that, that, I want you to get that. There's something that goes away. Stealing goes away. But it is not just enough to stop stealing. Paul's going to say that that command also has a positive inclination or demand on my life. So most of us will say, well, I don't steal, so I'm, I'm in compliance with God's law. And I want to push you to think about this from a broader perspective this morning. So the prohibition, okay, to put off stealing and to put on something else. Now, the next two things I'm going to give you are answers to the question, why should we enjoy and embrace work? 
Okay, and I'm going to give you two reasons from this text. Number one is this. Work is the God-ordained means by which an individual provides for his or her family. Okay, work, labor. In this text, the word labor talks about to the point of exhaustion. All right, this is manual labor. It's with the hands. Okay, because that was the essence of most work in the ancient world. Very few people had white-collar jobs. Most people had blue-collar jobs. Most people got their hands dirty. Most people labored. So the kind of work that Paul is talking about here is a, is a manual or hard labor. And I want to say this to you just real quick. If you go back in Genesis, you'll find that there is work before the fall. Okay, the enjoyment of it, the doing of it, God does it and Adam and Eve do it. After the fall, work becomes work. Okay, and, and this is the phrase that describes it. You do it by the sweat of your brow, okay? So sometimes you get going and you're working. You say, man, this is hard. And you wipe your brow. It should remind you that in, in the fall, in the curse that came upon this, this earth because of our sinfulness, there is a sense in which work becomes hard, but work can be redeemed from simply being hard. It can be hard work that is done for the glory of God. That is what redemption does. It it will transform your view of work. So the command in this text is, he has been stealing, must steal no longer, stop stealing, but he must work doing something useful with his own hands. So the command is, you must work. Okay, work is doing something useful. Uh, It is the expectation of Scripture that able-bodied people will labor in order to provide for their lives and the lives of those around them. That's the biblical mandate, okay? Work is the means by which we provide. In this context, work is called good. And and the idea of good here would be the idea of it, it has intrinsic value. It is a noble endeavor to be a hard-working person. So the text says, he must work doing something useful. Some translations are going to use the word something good with his own hands. The idea is productivity and influence coming as a result of those endeavors. So though work is hard, it is still noble. And the other thing I want to say is this. This text in no way differentiates between different kinds of work. It doesn't differentiate between my work as a pastor and Bobby Berezny's work as a carpenter, it does not see them differently. Now, we live in a world, particularly the ancient world, but even in our world, there, there is a sense in people's hearts that what the pastors do is important. And what I do is unimportant. Okay, and I want to do my best to, to shatter that false distinction between this idea of the value of work. When God calls us to work, he doesn't describe what kind of work it is. He talks about the work that all of us do in all of life as having an intrinsic value before God himself. It is ordained by him. All work matters. Labor has intrinsic value, not just high-profile and high-paying jobs. We live in a world that tends to admire success more than it honors an honest day's work. And I think we need to challenge our thinking on that. 
When God calls us to give honor and relationship to work, it's simply in relationship to an honest, hard day's work. It doesn't put down the idea of success. It doesn't put down the idea of seeking to improve one's life. But it doesn't put a focus on doing that either. It, it puts the focus on put in an honest, hard day's work and leave the results with God. Okay, so in your work, do you have to go or do you want to go? I want you to know this morning that work is your sacred calling from God. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 7, Paul will talk about work, the, the job, the particular area of work that you have as a sovereign divine calling from God. That to me is powerful. That's why the Bible says whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with all your hearts. So you should, in the workplace, strive to be the best that you can and to advance your career in a way that honors and glorifies God because it is the means by which you provide for your family and exemplify Christ to the world around you. Is my work characterized by integrity and honesty and distinction? God does not distinguish between the sacred and secular. Therefore, and I want you to catch this, therefore your work... What you do on a daily basis is to be lived out as obedient worship so that, okay, so if if what I'm doing through the week is worship, when I come on Sunday morning, I don't come to worship as in to begin or commence. I come to continue. Folks, I want you to think about this. If, if, If you come to church to worship and then you go to work to provide, and you don't see that your work is a continuation of worship, you have bought into the divide of the the secular and the sacred or the important and the unimportant. And you will end up spending the majority of your life in something that you perceive as unimportant because you bought a lie that what the people in the church do is important and what I do is mundane. Okay, I, I would love to see that destroyed. So that we would go out of this place saying, I came to worship, I also go out to worship, to do my work as unto the Lord. Work is your sacred, God-given calling. I, I, I want you to think about the coming of Jesus, just for a moment. When you think about the coming of Jesus, do you realize that Jesus came as a laborer? God came in flesh and worked with his hands. And Jesus could look up at his father after that work and the cross work was done and said, I have fulfilled your will. All of it. That thought should stun you and surprise you. God came as a manual laborer. And God calls us to do good with our hands because everything that Jesus did was what? It was good. Folks, there is a tendency on the part of Americans to find our identity in our job. We tend to admire success and hold up success in a way that I think at times is not healthy. I think we often forget our identity is in Christ. And that in Christ, every believer is a, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, people belonging to God, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. A child of God is a kingly priest in everything he or she does. That means that every part of my life is worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. It is the appropriate response to the goodness of God in your life, that in your work, you would work in a way that seeks to honor and glorify God. I want you to wake up tomorrow morning saying, you know what? Today I get to continue to worship God in the work of my hands. I think that's what Romans 12, 1 is saying. Present your bodies in the realm of work, your hands. Labor with your hands, doing something that is good, that is positive, that will influence your culture for good. One writer said it this way. He said, God is more concerned about how you do your job than what job you have. Do you believe that? If, if we live with a persistent discontentment about the job that God has given us, I doubt that we can do it as worship. If I'm always longing for being at a different level, if I, if I am overcome by that desire, I'm trying to find my identity, my personhood in what I do, not in how I do it. How you do it is what tells people something about Jesus. What you do is somewhat irrelevant, unless what you do is simply immoral in the workplace and you should stop doing it. Okay? What you do doesn't tell them you're a Christian. I can find Christians in every area of life. I can find unbelievers in every area of life. How you do it is what declares to people that God is at work in your life and that for you, life is not drudgery. Life is not duty. Life is delight for the glory of God because you are a child of God. You are a royal priesthood before God. That changes everything. So work is the means by which we provide for our family. And then this thought briefly, work is the honorable means by which we fulfill the great commandment. And I want to go on to the part of the verse that really stood me up. I knew that I should work. My dad made that very clear to me. When I was 13 years old, uh, I started playing soccer. I thought that'd be a good novel idea. Doug Finkbinder did it, so why couldn't I do it? Got home from the second week of practice, and my dad said, hey, I got you a job. My response was, I didn't know I wanted a job. So that's news to me. My dad had an expectation that you would work very hard. And to him, soccer wasn't work. So he wasn't enlightened yet, Rocco. So work is the honorable means by which we fulfill the great commission. It's the means by which this text says that we love God and love our neighbor. And this is honestly, work to me was a means of getting income to take care of yourself, which is, I believe, one of the God-given purposes of work. My mom taught me very at a very young age and I brought my first paycheck home after my dad got me the job I didn't want, that 10% of my income didn't belong to me. I did 90% of it I was not allowed to spend. 
It was going in the bank. It's like, dang, this does not make sense to me at all. (laughs) But I was taught something by my mom. Clear from the beginning. That of everything you get, it all belongs to God. And you honor that by giving him a portion of it first on a regular basis. This verse takes me in a totally different direction. This verse says, do what is good with your hands. Labor with your hands so that. And I think there's, there's an assumption in the text. The assumption is that in my work, I'm providing for my family. That's an assumption in the text. But the direction of the text is to correct a, another misunderstanding. And that is that what I earn is mine. And it's to take care of me and mine, not them. And Paul, I think, is going to hark to the teaching of Jesus here, the great commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and in a tangible fashion, love your neighbor as yourself. And the way that Paul does that in this verse, to me, is stunning. And I, 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 I want to ask you to think about this. As Christians, most of us have thought about work as a means by which we do support the work of God. But it is, is it a means for you by which you do the work of God? And I think there's a difference. Work with your own hands, with the aim, or so that he, the worker, may have something to share with those in need. Ask yourself the question, when is the last time I saw my paycheck that I get on a regular basis as a means to love my neighbor to fulfill the great commandment? Can I take you one step further? This is uncomfortable. If I never use my God-given resources to care for those in need, is there a sense in which I am stealing from them? That is to say, withholding from them what is rightfully by God's directive theirs. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you see someone in need and you say to them, hey, go be warmed and filled, but you don't lift a hand to help them, how does the love of Christ dwell in you? How are you not in violation of the six commandments that deal with your relationships with other people, particularly thou shalt not steal? Stealing is to withhold what is rightfully deserved. So I just, I I press this because it's a text that God pressed on my heart. We should work that we may eat. It is a noble means by which we provide for our family. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 makes it clear. If a man won't work, he should not eat. That is a divine prohibition. That's a prohibition that many countries need to get a hold of. Because we live in a world where many people are expected to support the sinful lifestyle of other people. That is, those that can work and won't should not be supported by any program, whether by a church or by the government. And everyone that can work, the Bible is clear, should work. And everyone that should work should earn money. And everyone that earns money should have part of their heart moving towards meeting the needs of those around them. I think that is the clear implication of this text and a beautiful way in which we fulfill the great commandment. Now, what does Scripture do? When Scripture talks about generosity in 1 Timothy, about the care for widows, you know what it does? It gives you a test. It talks about those that are widows in name and those that are widows in deed. 
So there is a means test so that the giving that you do to help people out in their time of need, the text is clear, help those in need that are unable to meet their own needs, not those who are able to meet it and won't. And so there's a test. If someone won't work, they shouldn't need it. If someone comes to me and says, hey, I need some help, it says, how's your job going? I don't have a job. Why don't you have a job? I don't want one. I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to help you. If you're trying or if you can't work, then we have an obligation to help you. That's what I think this text is clearly saying. And I think that's a shift in how many of us kind of view our work relationships and our income and how we dispose of it. And I just want to challenge you to think, is my use of my resources in line with the great commandment, loving God and loving my neighbor as myself? Are you... Are you eager to help others? Like, do you desire that? Do you want that? In Galatians 2.10, Paul, thinking about the church in Jerusalem, remembers a letter that they sent. And in that letter, it, they, they, they challenged Paul, remember the poor. Remember those that are truly in need. Remember them. You know what Paul says? This I was glad to do. I was glad. Folks, I think that is beautiful. So if we would be a church that works and works hard individually, and then we are corporately a hardworking church that seeks to meet the needs of our families and seeks to meet the need of the needy that God brings into our sphere of influence, we would be characterized as people who are eager to do good. Folks, that's witness. Let God transform your view of your paycheck. Let him show it to you as a means by which his work is supported, by which the needs of your family are met, and by which the needs of those without can be satisfied. And I think you will find that God will transform your work from something that you have to do to something that you want to do. Because you realize that when it is done in a way that honors God, it is daily worship. Here's what God aims to do with your work life. God aims to transform your view of work. He wants you to go to work realizing that this is a context in which God has called me to live. This is a context in which I will influence more people than in any other area of my life. I will get to rub shoulders with people. They can watch my life. They can see Jesus coming alive in me. Do you have to go to work? Or do you get to go to work? Is it mundane? Or is it a mission? Is it secular or is it sacred? Is it work? Or is it worship? Something that you passionately pursue for the glory of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we conclude our discussion this morning, I want you to think about the fact that as we approach the Lord's table, God is a giver. God is a giver. John 3.16, probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible, says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Folks, listen, I best imitate God when I'm a giver. It is the essence of God's love. 
that he gives and gives and gives again. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning and as we think of work, I want you to turn your attention to the work of Christ. Who at the end of his cross work could pray to his father, Father, the work you gave me to do, it's done. Forgiveness is available for your people. Restoration, redemption, transformation of every area of their life is now possible because of the sacrifice that Jesus made because of what he gave for you and I. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to go out of here saying, huh, I need to go out and work and I need to work to take care of my family, to support the work of God and to take care of others. And then I'm better. You'll fail. The abscess of sinfulness will erupt and always overwhelm all of the good that you intend through law keeping. What you need to do this morning is come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have a wicked heart that needs to be transformed. And this morning, I want to place faith in your work, what your hands did for me on Calvary's cross. I want to be forgiven by your shed blood. I want to be swept into your kingdom. I want tomorrow to be the continuation of worship in my life out of deep gratitude for all that you have done for me. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to first examine your work life and say, God, is it what you want it to be? And if it's not, don't ignore communion. Examine yourself with the aim of confessing, asking God to transform, and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. The aim of our examination this morning as Christians in coming to the Lord's table is so that we might prepare ourselves to appropriately receive the evidences, the explanations, the pictures of the giving of Jesus. Father, as we come this morning to your table, you invite us to come and to enjoy the benefits of the work of Jesus. Pray, God, that our hearts will be clean, that they will be pure. Father, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who is inclined to partake of the Lord's table but doesn't know you personally, Father, I pray that you would do a work of drawing them and giving them the gift of faith this morning and the gift of repentance so that they may believe and trust in the name of Jesus and in truth partake of these elements, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. God, change us by the work of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.